dismiss our children to junior church time right now. So let's have a word of prayer. We'll dismiss them and the workers to go to junior church. Let's pray for them this morning. Uh, Father, we love you. We thank you for this time. We pray, Lord, that you bless our young people as they go out. Be with the workers, fill them with thy Holy Spirit. Help them, Lord, to know that these children are precious gifts from God that need to know Jesus as their Savior. Father, we pray, Lord, that you would allow the gospel to uh, penetrate their hearts, Lord, and find good ground that somebody might be saved. Father, bless us as we remain behind. Help us with the word today. We'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we'll let the young people go. Let's take our Bibles. Please turn to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6 this morning. Good music this morning. I appreciate that. It excited me. got my heart moving. Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 13 is where we'll start this morning. I'd like to preach for a few moments this morning on a message entitled, The Veil. The Veil. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13. For when God made promise to Abraham, now listen to this, because he could swear by no greater, he swear by himself. I've been in courtrooms and I've watched witnesses swear an oath that they will tell the whole truth and they'll put their hand on a Bible. We were present when my son was sworn in as a police officer and he put his hand on a Bible and sweared to uphold the law and to fulfill his duty. But the Bible says that when God made this covenant, he could swear by no greater, so he swore by himself. He didn't pull out a Bible. He didn't swear on anything else because there's nothing greater than him. Verse 14 says, saying, Surely, blessing I will bless thee, and multiplying I will multiply thee. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men verily swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is to them an end of all strife. Wherein God, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath. Now think about that. God uh, confirmed this New Testament. We'll look at that in a moment. You'll see he's talking about the, the New Covenant or the New Testament of his blood. He confirmed it by an oath according to his immutability. That means God is unchanging. God will never change. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. A lot of people will get up in front of a church and they will make a vow one to another. They'll take an oath that they will love, cherish, honor one another for all, until death do they part. And then just a few years later, their feelings change. And they'll cash in those vows and they'll break uh, that covenant one with another and they'll go and they'll get a divorce. And that's because we are a changing people. We are a sinful flesh. We are weakness embodied in this flesh. But the Bible says that God is unchangeable. He did not make this oath in a fickle way. He's not going to change his mind tomorrow. He's not going to have feelings that come up and destroy this oath because he is the same. He never changes. The Bible says in verse 18 that by two immutable things, number one, in which it was impossible for God to lie. A lot of times we sign an oath or a contract, we will shake somebody's hand and not know what is going on in their heart. But for God, it is impossible to lie. And that we might have a strong consolation. 
who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us. Now look at verse 19 as a consequence of these two things. One, that God never changes. And number two, it is impossible for God to lie. There is no hidden motive in this contract. There is no reason to not believe the New Testament of grace. There's no reason to believe that his blood is not sufficient to wash away your sins. There is no reason to believe that when Jesus Christ says it is finished, that there's any more work to do. Because he is unchangeable and he cannot lie. Those are two immutable things. There's two things that you can write down for all eternity uh, that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And because of these things, notice what he says next. We have a hope. We have a hope. Not a hope like you're hoping to get something for Christmas. You're hoping that the doctor's report will come back in a positive way. Not kind of that kind of hope, but a hope that is both sure and steadfast. Titus says it is the blessed hope. It is Jesus Christ. We are looking for that hope is a rock in our lives because it is founded upon the Lord. Verse 19, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast. Now look at this next phrase. And which entereth into that within the veil. Whither the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus made a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. If we were to turn back to the book of Exodus today, we won't take the time to do that. We would find God's prescription of how to build the tabernacle. We would learn all about the different coats of skin that they were to put over as a tent covering. We learn about the tent poles that they would have to build. They, we, we learn about the different wagons it would take to pull them. And as they traveled from place to place, we would learn about the furniture of the temple, the Ark of the Covenant, the table of the showbread, the, the altar of incense, the laver or the wash basin. We would learn about the lampstand representing the light of the world, Jesus Christ. We would learn about the different areas of the temple. The outer area was called the court of the Gentiles. And then in a little bit further, you would find a place called the court of Israel. The court of the Gentiles, I believe, was God's way of saying, whosoever will may come. Anybody could come to that temple. They didn't have to be a Jew. There was a place where anybody could come and they could learn more about God and perhaps enter into his covenant. The court of Israel, you would enter into that place and you would find the work of the priests, the tribe of Levi, there you could take your lamb if you were a Jew and you could take it to one of those priests and he would inspect it and find whether or not it had spot or blemish. And if it was declared clean, you would take it over to the altar in the middle of that court. And there a priest would shed its blood. They would take that blood into a cup. And that priest would go into the holy place. In that holy place is where you'd find the table of showbread representing the bread of life, Jesus Christ. There you would see the lamp stand, which represented the light of the world. You would see incense burning, which represented our prayers going up to God. So much figurative things taking place. But then the priest would come to a veil. And he could go no further. It was there that the wash basin was set. 
And the high priest would stand there at that veil and he would take that blood and he would set it down and he would wash himself and cleanse himself ceremoniously. It was a picture of his clean heart before God. Once a year, he would take that blood and he'd go into the Holy of Holies through the veil and he alone could go in. He would take that blood and he would sprinkle it upon the altar to cover, not cleanse, but to cover for the sins of himself and the people. Every year, this process would be repeated. Oh, there was a lot of sacrifices that took place daily as those Levites would minister in the holy place, but not the holy of holies. Only the great high priest could go in there. We remember from the book of Exodus that it was in that holy of holies that we'd find the Ark of the Covenant. Upon that Ark of the Covenant was built what they called the mercy seat. How many of you are picturing it in your mind? We all have a different idea. We probably have an idea what it looks like. The Bible tells us very carefully. But a mercy seat. And the Bible says above the mercy seat, cherubims with their wings spread out guarding that place. It was there that God would descend and speak to the high priest. The first, of course, being Aaron. You'll remember that Zacharias met with him there and told him that his wife, Elizabeth, would have a child. And because of his unbelief, God made him to go dumb or without voice until that child was born. And he told him, the child's name shall be John. He shall be the forerunner of the Messiah. It was there that God met with his people. It was behind that veil, a place that only the great high priest could go, a place where only a selected one was allowed to meet with God as a representative of the people, both as for the sprinkling of the blood and the covering of their sin, but also to hear from God and give the people his message. It was a very distinct honor to be the priest, but it was a very serious thing. For they would tie a rope to his foot, and if that priest was not cleansed in his heart, he may well drop dead in that place, and they'd have to drag him out. What a mighty and terrible God. In Hebrews chapter 6, we see mention of that veil. You'll notice it says in verse 19, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, now look at this, which entereth into that Within the veil. Who is it speaking of? It's speaking about Jesus Christ. He is the hope in verse 19. He is both sure and steadfast. He is the one that went into the veil. You'll remember that thousands of years later, the Lord Jesus Christ would die on the hill of Calvary. And the Bible says at the moment he said it is finished, lightning and thunder struck. And the Bible says that the veil was torn from the top to the bottom. The veil was gone. And you could see clearly in to the Holy of Holies. Access to God was restored. Of course, the Jews didn't understand and for years longer they would still sacrifice until at least 70 AD when the temple was destroyed. They would still make sacrifices. They would repair that torn curtain. 
But God had already torn it from top to bottom. Making a definitive statement. Man can have access to God. I want you to notice some things, though, that are very important when we think about this veil. If you will, turn to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. I want you to notice, first of all, that Old Testament veil was a figure. It was a figure. It was a picture of things to come. It was something to teach us about this true veil, Jesus Christ. Now look what it says in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 23. It says, It was therefore necessary that the patterns of things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. Now look what it says, verse 24. Now, how many of you believe that Jesus Christ is now the great high priest? Amen. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 9, and, or, sorry, Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 20, we read verse 19 just a moment ago, which hope we have as an anchor for soul, but sure and steadfast. In verse 20, it literally says, he is the high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So what does that mean? Melchizedek was a unique priest. Aaron was a priest. Zacharias was a priest of the tribe of Levi. But Melchizedek was not just a priest. He was also a prophet and a king. Jesus Christ was not just a priest after the order of Aaron or Zacharias. He was, he was a priest after the order of Melchizedek. He was prophet, priest, and king. Now look what it says in chapter 9, in verse 25, or 23. It was therefore necessary that the patterns of things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. Listen, for Christ is not entered into the holy place. Stop right there. You say, wait a minute. If it is the high priest's job to go into the holy of holies and to sprinkle blood upon the altar for the covering of man's sins, why wouldn't Jesus do that as the perfect high priest? Not only was he the perfect high priest, he had the perfect sacrifice. The bulls of blood and goats had been shed for centuries and blood was always being applied to that altar year after year after year and it was never sufficient enough. It was a, a remembrance more than anything every year of the people's sins. So why wouldn't Jesus enter in? Notice what it says. Look at verse 24. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 24. For Christ has not entered into the holy places, look at it says, made with hands. He didn't go into that tabernacle. He didn't go into that temple on the mount. Why? Because they are figures of the true. Just a picture. Here, where did Jesus go then? Look what it says. But into heaven itself. Now to appear in the presence of God for us. Not yet that he should offer himself often as the high priest entered in the holy place every year with blood of others. For then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. The Old Testament tabernacle and later the temple was just a figure. The veil that kept man from the Holy of Holies was a figure. It was a statement to mankind. You are a lost sinner and he is a holy God. There is separation come between you. 
Because of the fall of man, because of the sin of Adam, because of that inherited sin in our lives, we are separated from a holy God and the veil stands between us. But Jesus Christ went into the holy place, not in a temple, not in a place made with man's hands, but he entered in the holy of holies in heaven into the very throne room of God. And he said, it is finished. And he applied his own blood. That's what the temple teaches us. The Bible says, for years they offered, but Jesus offered once and for all. Like that old hymn, once for all, O sinner, believe it. Once for all, O sinner, receive it. Once for all. It is just a figure. It is just a figure. I want you to notice secondly, but it's an offer of forgiveness. That veil is an offer of forgiveness. Turn, if you will, to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. Now we're going to get into something really important here. Hold on. Hebrews chapter 10. You following me? Going to be some doctrine this morning. Hebrews chapter 10. Look at verse 10 with me. By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. There it is again. And every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. From henceforth, expecting till, the enemies, till his enemies be made his footstool. For by one offering, he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Wherefore, the Holy Ghost is also a witness to us. For after that he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds will I write them. And their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Now where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new living way, he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. Having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience, our bodies washed with pure water. When I think of the veil, I see, first of all, it is a figure of that which separates man from God, but I also see it is an offer of forgiveness. The Bible says that Jesus Christ died once and for all to pay the price for our sins. He says those sacrifices that were made yearly can never take away sins, but Jesus can offer his blood, and he can say your sins and your iniquities I'll remember no more. Notice what it says as we get to the end of that passage, verse 19 there. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter in the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he hath consecrated for us through what? The veil. Through the veil. Now, wait a minute. Didn't we just hear that the veil was torn from top to bottom? They say, oh, well, the, you know, the Jews would have sewed that thing back up or they would have replaced it. They would have put a new one in there until at least the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. But Jesus is talking spiritually here. 
The author is telling us about the temple in heaven. So why would he say there's a veil? Why would he say we have to enter through the veil? Because there is still a veil. It's changed. Notice it's not a veil that is a curtain like it was before. It is not woven. It is not made from animal skins. You will not turn to the book of Exodus and find this veil to be the same as it was back in the Old Testament time. Notice what kind of veil it is in verse 20. By a new and living way which he hath consecrated for us through the veil. That is to say what? His flesh. His flesh. The only thing standing between you and God is Jesus Christ. Didn't Jesus say something about that? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Now I got thinking about this. A lot of people would have come to the temple. I, I went to Israel. I went to the Temple Mount. I want to see all that. I remember going behind. The, the Dome of the Rock is there now. I imagine when Jesus Christ returns and sets foot on there that that thing's just going to blow up. But right behind there, there's a kind of a monument. It looks like a fountain to me, like an old-fashioned fountain. And it says right here, according to the measurements of the Temple Mount, this is where the Holy of Holies would have been. This is where the Ark would have been. This is where God would meet with man right in this very place. There's a lot of places in Israel that are traditional, but I believe that's very accurate because it is on the Temple Mount and it's all been measured out. God gave all the measurements right in the Bible where they put everything and where it was to face, what direction to go. and Right there. Right there in that place. And I've gone to Israel and I've looked around and I've wanted to see different things. I've wanted to notice the empty tomb and I wonder how many would come to Israel and they'd go into the court of the Gentiles and say, what a magnificent creation. Some might even go into the court of Israel if they were Israelites, if they were Jewish people, and they'd go in there and they'd see over here the Levites and, and, and inspecting some lambs, and over here on the altar they'd see others being sacrificed and others taking blood into the holy place, and, but they could only go so far. Perhaps there was Levites that would take their turn ministering in the temple and they would carry that blood into the holy place, and there they would meet the great high priest and they'd wonder, what's behind that veil? I've heard of the ark, but I've never seen it in my lifetime. Yeah, they used to carry it around the desert, didn't they? But in the times of Christ, no man would have seen that ark except for the great high priest. Perhaps he described it to him, told him how beautiful it was and what it was like when Shekinah glory came into that room as God showed up and ministered to his people. But they had not seen it with their own eyes. They didn't know what it was like. Oh, like you did earlier in this message today, you, you pictured it in your mind and you've got this vision of what that golden box looks like with the rings on its side and the staves going through and the mercy seat. And the Bible says there's a visible ring of gold that goes all around it. Those cherubim's wings spread over top. But I wondered if they looked at that veil and maybe when the priest goes in, we'll catch a glimpse. I wouldn't advise it. God said, well, if you try to come up this holy mountain just to catch a glimpse of my glory, I'll strike you dead. But perhaps there was a few that thought they could see something. But only the high priest would enter through that veil. But now, friend, you want to enter into that veil? You come through Jesus. 
The veil today is his flesh. He is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. To cross that veil today is an offer of forgiveness. It is to recognize that Jesus Christ shed his blood for your sins. It is to recognize that the work of Calvary was sufficient, that it is finished. It is, it is to recognize that I can be reconciled to God because that which was once separated by a veil is now reunited by Jesus Christ and his forgiveness. Do you know him? It is figurative. It is an offer of forgiveness. But I want you to notice thirdly, there is a forerunner. Turn back to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6. This is important. Look at verse 19 again. Which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that within the veil. What's those next few words? Whither the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus. <clears throat> the tabernacle was built, and on the Day of Atonement, Aaron would go in as the great high priest. But never was he called the forerunner. Never. Throughout the centuries, there was priest after priest after priest we read of Annas and Caiaphas, the great high priest. We read of Zacharias. We read of others. But never were they called the forerunner. Now, this is going to amaze you. Do you know what a forerunner is? It's one who goes before. John the Baptist was called the forerunner of the Messiah. It was his job to make the way straight. It was his job to prepare the way of the Lord. It was his job to raise the valleys and to lower the mountains so Christ could be seen. The Bible says that Jesus is the forerunner. John the Baptist said, there's one that is coming after me who is preferred before me, whose shoes latch that I am unworthy to loose. To be a forerunner, one must come after. The Lord Jesus Christ entered into the Holy of Holies as the forerunner. Meaning that all those who are reconciled to God can go in as well. That's the miracle of all this, that we can have access to God because the new veil is Jesus Christ. Where once we stood separated by a veil, now we are united. Where once we were out of the grace of God, now we can know his presence and know his grace and know his mercy. Turn to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. Back just a couple pages. Verse 14. Seeing then we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly under the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Let me tie all this together. The Lord Jesus Christ was a figure. He did not enter into the earthly tabernacle made with hands. 
He entered into the very throne room of God in heaven. His blood was applied. And man was reconciled to God for those who would believe. Now my Bible says, I'm to come boldly to the throne of grace. To ask for mercy and to find grace and help in the time of need. Remember I told you about those Levites. If I were a Levite, and I don't see it in the Bible, I'm going to be honest with you. But if I were a Levite, I sure want to see what's going on in there. Wouldn't you? Wouldn't you want to see inside? I'm sure they were warned. Don't you try to look in here. If you see God's glory, that's your kind of You'll die. No man can see God's face and live. Don't you dare try to sneak a peek. But how many of you know that that doesn't deter a lot of people? If I were a Levite, I'd be... Now think about this. Where is the new Holy of Holies? It's not in a tabernacle made with hands. It's around the throne of God in heaven. The Lord Jesus Christ came to his father's home, his father's throne. And with the blood of the covenant, he said, this is the New Testament in my blood. And God would look at that blood and say, son, that's your blood. That's not like the blood of lambs and goats. That's perfect blood. Sinless blood. Spotless blood. It is finished. And Jesus would offer it, the Bible says, once and for all. And God, sitting on his throne, would say, son, And Jesus would sit down at the right hand of his Father. Now think. Do you know why he sat down? Because the work was finished. Nothing else needed to be done. Those, those temple priests were running daily, it says. Thousands of sacrifices. On the Day of Atonement, thousands upon that one day were sacrificed. And that high priest would be just constantly praying and pleading with God and down at the altar and giving blood. And when he applied the blood, essentially he'd get up and he'd say, I'll see you next year. And drag his tired self home and go through the whole motions again for another year. Sins covered but never cleansed. But when Jesus offered once and for all, his father was satisfied. And Jesus sat down at his right hand. Now, you're outside that, in that holy place and you're poking around and you're wanting to see inside that holy of holies. The veil is gone except for one. Who is the veil? Jesus. And do you know what he's doing? He's sitting there and he sees you looking through the door. He says, come unto me all ye that labor and heavy laden. I'll give you rest. Suffer the little children. Come on in. Come unto me. Whosoever will drink of the water of life, I will give it to him freely. Come. Meet my father. You've been reconciled. The price is paid. You don't have to stand outside anymore. Come on in. In that moment, it's going to be so, it's so humbling. You know, we come in with our hat in our hand. And we say, oh, God, 
I need mercy. I'll do better than that. I'll give you grace. And help in the time of need. But Jesus, come boldly. Because it is finished. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes today. That video you watched today, he is. He can be all those things to you. When you come boldly to his throne, you say, who do I find there? You find Jehovah Jireh. Jehovah Shalom. You see the God who sees, the God who knows, the God who supplies, the God who loves, the God who cares, the God who comforts. That's who you find. Let's stand together to our feet today if God has spoke to your heart. The altar's open even now. The finished work of Calvary did so much more than save your soul. It made you so you could go into the throne of grace boldly to his feet and to know him personally. That's what it did for you. Maybe there's one here today say, Preacher, I'm not sure I'm saved, though. I don't know Jesus as my Savior. I, I'm trying to work my way through that veil. I'm trying to be religious to get through that veil. I'm trying to, uh, you know, do good works and get through that veil. But the veil is his flesh. You have to come through Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Do you know Jesus as your Savior today? Maybe there's some who would just rejoice with me today and thank God that we can boldly go to the throne and find our Father because of what Jesus did for us.